A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Teach Coalition with the New York City Election Day being today, June 22nd, 2021. So it's time to drop the excuses and go out there and vote. When it comes to funding for our schools and communities, elected officials pay attention to the people who vote. It's simple. If you're not voting, you don't have a voice. And our community needs and wants and deserves a very strong and beautiful and powerful voice. So it's go out there and vote, influence others, your neighbors and friends. If you do live in New York City. If you don't live in New York City, then pick up the phone and call all the people you know in New York City and uh, and um, and encourage them to vote. If you have any questions or you need help with your going and voting, so call or email the Orthodox Unions Teach NYS at 646-459-5162. That's 646-459-5162. Or email friendm at teachcoalition.org. Friend M at teachcoalition.org. When you vote, elected officials take note. So that rhymes. When you vote, elected officials take note. And, and that's why it's a good jingle. And, and you can use that rhyme when you try to convince others to vote as well. You can sing it when you're standing in line at the ballot box. But I want to mention that it is the election day itself. It's June 22nd today. Um, there's, I saw a fantastic interview with the head of Teach Coalition, Mori Litvak, on uh, Mishpacha Magazine's website. He was interviewed by Suruli Besser, and he explained the necessity of voting. He also went into the history of politics, so I found it interesting as well. So you might want to check it out on the Mishpacha website, Take Two, with Mori Litvak. He also, over there, he, he, he speaks about how his name is Litvak, and he still gets along with all the Hasidim. So you see that he's a great advocate and Teach Coalition takes care of everyone. Because if someone named Litva can, can be an advocate for the Hasidic community, then we can't get better unity in the Jewish people than that. Um, so go to the polls today. Be politically active. It's the only way to get anything done. Um, for yourselves and for the community at large, influence others to vote. Pick up a phone. Make some calls. Every person can easily influence 10 others to vote and then really reap the fruits of labor. Politically strong and active community is a successful one. And of course, it assists in so many ways for the education of our children. On the topic of the election today, 
It's worth mentioning that there was just an excellent cover article in last week's Mishpacha magazine by my dear colleague Davi Safir. He did it himself this time and had very little to contribute. I got a little thank you at the end. Uh, but he did a better job than I would have ever done uh, collaborating with him. And apparently, even mayoral candidates of New York City are reading it and retweeting it. One of the leading candidates tweeted the cover article of Mishpacha magazine last night about Rebel Khan Wasserman by Davi Safir. And I didn't write any of it. It was all Davi. So I guess we now know who the better writer of the two of us is. It's an excellent article. And on the eve of the election, with nothing more important in New York City than this, so a leading candidate tweeted it, recognizing the importance of Jewish history. So even if Teach Coalition doesn't officially endorse any candidate, so here is an unofficial endorsement from someone who never lived in New York City that uh, definitely go with a candidate who uh, promotes uh, Mishpacha Magazine's history column and uh, awareness of Jewish history. So he's definitely got my support. Uh, who knows? Maybe they'll have be if he wins. Maybe they'll be required reading in New York City, uh, Mishpacha Magazine's history column. You can imagine public school teachers in the South Bronx, uh, along with Satmar teachers in Williamsburg, opening their class with a Mishpacha, Mishpacha Magazine. Turn everyone to the history column. Let's see what uh, Davi has to say today, or Davi and Yehuda have to say today. That would be an educational dream. Either way. Getting to Reblazer Silver, who's the topic of today's episode, it's also in memory of uh, Donnie Morris, who is a descendant, who was a descendant of the great Reblazer Silver and tragically passed away in the uh, recent Marone tragedy, and it should be in his memory as well. Um, so we're getting to get to Reblazer Silver in just momentarily. Did get an enormous amount of feedback from the Kleisenberg episode, the episode part two on the Kleisenberg Rebbe. There's more than enough for part three, uh, so we're going to save that for then because there's so much, so much, so much uh, feedback and interesting stories. Interestingly enough, one of the more interesting letters I received recently was that in a recent episode, and the letter writer mentioned that there were children talking loudly in the background during the last several minutes of. The episode. Well, listen, listen out there. If we don't have an appreciation for the Jewish future, then why bother studying our past? Studying our past is in order to empower us for the future of our people. So, what was heard in the background was exactly that: the Jewish future. My children, uh, who had returned from school and doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, making lots of noise. So, uh, we have that combination of the past. And the future on one episode, I can't think of anything more ideal to have on Jewish history sound bites. Before I move along to um, Reb Eliezer Silver, and uh, and of course it will be one of several, hopefully, uh, episodes on this great man, I want to make a short tribute to a very, very special man, albeit somewhat unknown personality, Rabbi Chiel Zilberberg, who passed away yesterday. I want to take a couple of minutes for a short tribute to him before getting to Reb Eliezer Silver yesterday. Rabbi Chil Zilberg, who was the longtime Balkoire in Mir Yeshiva, passed away. He was in his mid-90s. And um, he was not, not very well-known, not very famous, but a very, very special, unique individual. He had been the Balkoire uh, in the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim for uh, well over six decades, basically forever. Uh, part of Saying that he was part of the furniture is an understatement. Um, as, as myself, as a student of, Amir, of the Mir Yeshiva, and especially during my years that I was, had the privilege to be the Gabbai 
of Mary Shiva. I was one of the few who had the privilege of having a very nice relationship with him. He was a holy man, a very special man. He was a short, unassuming, sometimes stern, but he had a fantastic sense of humor, a real old-time tzaddik with no airs about him. He immigrated with his family from Germany when he was seven years old, so he was technically a yeki. And even though it did permeate his personality and his exactitude about yeshiva custom and tradition, but uh, he over time became a Yerushalmi, uh, through and through uh, with time. He attended the Yerushalmi uh, Yeshiva Torah Vayira in Meish Aram. And in 1944, when uh, Rebbelezi Finkel, the first Rebbelezi Finkel, opened the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, he, there was no one around. I mean, the Mir Yeshiva was in Shanghai at the time, and he needed, he, needed, he needed students in the Yeshiva. So he asked his good friend, Rev Isser Zalman Meltzer, um, who was the head of the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, in Yerushalayim, he asked him if he could send him his senior students to, you know, to, to found uh, the Mir Yeshiva. And uh, Mrs. Alman acquiesced his request and, 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 and sent uh, the founding members of the Mir Yeshiva, some great personalities, great individuals for another time. And um, uh, the Torah Vayir Yeshiva, which was not quite as good as the uh, Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, felt kind of left out. And they wanted the prestige of sending, uh, um, to, to be founding members of the Mir as well. So they asked Rebbe Zidl if they could send one of their best. And Rebbe Zidl was like, yeah, Torah Vayir, and nah, I'd rather the Eitz Chaim crowd. It's you know better, more quality. And they begged, and he said, okay, we'll take one as a test case. And that one was Rebbe Chil Zilberberg. He was the only one who came from Torah Vayir and not... Eitz Chaim, and because um, Blaise Yudel was wary of these Yerushalmis, who they would get married when a year later they got married very young, he was used to the Mir students who got married in their 30s, and here he would take teenagers, uh, Yerushalmis, and they would get married a year later, and then they would disappear from the yeshiva, so he was very nervous about that, so he made a condition is that there, with Rebichil, is what he told me, that he, he came in at the age of 17, and he's Rebbe told him, I'm only accepting you on condition that you do not get married during your first three years in yeshiva. You're not allowed to get married for three years. So he had to get married at the whopping old age of 20. And uh, Rebbe said it was a little hard, but he was able to do it. He was able to do it, and he actually never left. He's the only one of the founding members who never left. He outlived all the other founding members. Uh, so he was the last of those uh, founding members. And he was the only one who never left. He remained the whole time. He was asked by Rebbe Finkel to become the Balkaire, um in the, either the 50s or 60s. I don't remember, like a really long time ago. And he was the last word on yeshiva custom and tradition. He was the senior elderly statesman who everyone turned to to find out the exact yeshiva custom and the traditions, the Rosh Yeshiva, um, of blessed memory, and the yeshiva relied on him to clarify any of the customs, big or small. He kept it up through the years. The yeshiva had trem- yeshiva Zetzal had tremendous respect for him. He was the only non-Rosh yeshiva personality, the non-family related personality, to receive the coveted Shlishi Aliyah on Shabbos. He rigidly stuck to the traditions of yeshiva, nothing new, no new stuff, especially any stringencies, no chumras. Uh, there was there was once a fellow, it was one of those leap years, where in recent years, on leap years, so there's these, uh, you know, representatives of the religious lobby come up with this uh, stringency of the Chassam Seifer that one has to have in mind on Parshas Kiseitse to remember 
the story of Amalek because it, it's more than a year that passes because it's a leap year, so there's an extra month, and it's one of the things that has become in vogue, and Rabbi Chil would not hear of it. So this individual uh, came over to him and one of those years, uh, and he said to him, can you have in mind for this Amalek thing, this Chumrah, and Rabbi Chil said, we've never done such a thing, and that was enough of an answer, and this guy insisted, and uh, and uh, and Rabbi Chil would not hear of it. He simply refused to uh, to accommodate him. And speaking of Parsha Zachar, so in Parsha Zachar he would lane pretty much regular. He would not lane it any slower or extra, you know, ways of saying the letters or twice or anything like that. He wouldn't do any of that. And when he was asked why, he said everyone does it. Everyone says it slower and louder and all kinds of extras. And he said. Ich I always lane well. There's no reason for me to change my laning just because it's a special parsha. No shtick about him. He uh, he would protest the throwing of candies for bar mitzvah boys. He said, and, and we, all, we the tradition is that we only did it by an ufruf, by a chassid. We never did it by a bar mitzvah boy. So he was very particular about all the customs. He knew the, ca- the Jewish calendar by heart. When I were I would announce the Mailad by by every Reish Chodesh, I would announce the Mailad. In, in Yiddish, of course, in the in the base medrash. So he, uh, see, if I would ever say it wrong, the chalakim and the whatever the amount of minutes and chalakim, so he would always correct me by heart. He wouldn't. Be, I, I saw he wouldn't be looking into any calendar. He knew it, and he would correct me if I said it wrong. Um, I remember it was a Purim Meshulish, uh, um, and uh, and there was a drunk fellow who got up in front of the base medrash after davening on Shabbos morning, and he said, guys, we have to really celebrate Purim Meshulish because there's not going to be another one for another 15 years. And all of a sudden, Rabbi Chil screams out, what do you mean, in three years, Tafshin Samaches, there's going to be another Purim Meshulish. He had all the, the details right away on the spot. He used to daven for the Amud on the second night of Rosh Hashanah. He'd also daven on Saim Gedalia during the Slichas. There's a special Slicha called Azavna, Ben Adam Azavna, that he would cry. He cried and cried by that slicha on Sam Gedalia. Till today, that's my favorite slicha as a result of his uh, davening. And, and the shul that I daven in in Beit Shemesh skips it, believe it or not. So I have to do it myself. Uh, he, would, he would express through his laning uh, a lot about who he was. I remember on the Shavuos morning, by the Maisa Merkava of Yecheskel, he would cry through the Maisa Merkava. So apparently he, he knew what he was talking about, because none of us did, or at least I didn't. I had no idea what he was talking about, and it didn't mean anything to me. And he would cry through it, because he obviously someone of his stature understood what it was all about. Um, he actually, speaking of Shavuos morning, he didn't trust anyone with reaching Vasikin exactly on time on Shavuos morning, so he would daven himself until the Shemayna Esrei, and then step down after Shemayna Esrei. Um, he also cried on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, or the second day, second day of Rosh Hashanah, Haftarah, by Haben Yakir Li Ephraim. He would cry. He had lost a son of his own earlier in life, and this uh, evoked the memory. Uh, he was very, very, uh, very special, special Jew of the old school. He would cover his shtender with a white cloth on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. He was the only one in the whole base matter. He suffered a stroke during laning on Parshas Ve'ezchanan about 11 years ago. And when I went to visit him in the hospital, he told me, Ich mein tafkir. I have finished my job as the Balkairi Yeshiva. And he definitely looked it. His speech was slurred. He was thin and pale and very weak. And a few months later, he was back at the bench. He was laning again in Yeshiva, loud and clear. And he kept on going for another decade. So he literally came back from the dead. He was something else. He would come to study in the yeshiva in the base medrash on Shabbos afternoon, very simply and quietly, without fanfare. 
Almost no one knew that he recited a quiet Kelmale for all mere alumni that have passed away throughout the decades, even from the Shanghai days. On the week of their yard site, I used to see his lists. So may his memory be a blessing and uh, the short tribute should serve him uh, somewhat justice. So now getting, finally, 15 minutes into this episode, we'll get to Reblazer Silver. Um, and of course, we're going to be doing him uh, justice, Reblazer Silver, because we're going to have many more on him. So it's not limited to part one, so don't think that I stole too many minutes away from him. It's definitely going to be a few parts. I want to thank, um, at the outset, uh, my dear friend and Cincinnati resident, Binyamin Teitelbaum, for providing some stories. And of course, the legendary Ellie Neuberger, the great uh, uh, knowledge know-all, um, who also provided tidbits and stories and other knowledgeable and dedicated listeners for sharing their stories and tidbits about early as a silver. Definitely be a few parts. Like I said, not only did he have a myriad of accomplishments, he lived through such a crucial and historical time period. In addition, he was a real leader and in the spotlight he always liked being in the spotlight and somewhat was self-promotional in that way. He was a very, very funny person. There's a story that when he was in the back of, of, of a car, he was being driven, and the driver was, was somewhere. It was a, a roadblock or, or traffic or, or police stopped him, whatever it was. And the driver said, I have the chief rabbi of the United States in the back seat. You know, he was the president of the Agudas Rabbanim, so in that capacity, perhaps... He can be called the chief rabbi of the United States. So he told the, the fellow, the policeman, whoever it was, that he, please let me through. I have the chief rabbi in the back seat, the United States in the back seat. All of a sudden, there's a shout from the back seat, Un Canada, Un Canada. I'm also, it's the chief rabbi of the United States and Canada. So just don't forget that part also. He had a phenomenal sense of humor. There's so, so many stories, which we'll hopefully get to in future episodes. Many stories were actually revolved around his sense of humor. He was very, very old school, a real Lithuanian rabbi. He was not a Rosh Hashiva, very much not. He was not a product of the Musser movement, very much not. He was not a chassid. He was a real, just a real responsible and beloved rabbinical leader who knew how to get things done, who was a man of action, knew how to get along with everyone, including those who were different than him. He knew how to do it with a smile. He was very driven, very motivated, a unique individual who was at the right place and at the right time in American Jewish history. So be in touch about sponsorships for future episodes under Blazer Silver or any other ones that you would like also in general for Jewish History Soundbite. So this part one will be somewhat of an overview and in future parts we'll delve into specific chapters of his life more in depth. The greatest source, of course, on Blazer Silver is the definitive biography by Rabbi Dr. Aaron Rakefet Rathkoff, the Silver Era, so that's highly recommended reading as well to get to know, <coughs> excuse me, his story uh, more. That's definitely the greatest work. And there's also some other stuff about him floating around, especially during his activities during the war years. Um, he lived from 1882 to 1968, a relatively long life, and at the crossroads of Jewish history. His youth, he was born in a little town near Kovna called Abla or Abel. Uh, to a rabbinical family. As a teenager, he studied in Dvinsk under uh, the rabbi there, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, the Ragatshaver, was actually the Hasidic rabbi there. He moved on to Vilna, where he was part of the famous kibbutz, the, the, the informal yeshiva, led by Rabbi Chaim Grudzinski. And he became a close, close student of his, one of the closest. Later, Rabbi Chaim, he would be Rabbi Chaim 
point man in the United States for so many of the projects that he was involved with throughout his long and illustrious career. In many ways, his accomplishments need to be viewed from that perspective as a student of Reb Chaim Eiser and the conduit of, of, of Reb Chaim Eiser. To a certain extent, he was the long arm of Reb Chaim Eiser and to carry out their joint projects together in the United States and his vision for American orthodoxy as well as on behalf of the increasingly beleaguered Eastern European Jewry. Um, that, that partnership needs to be understood because that's how most of his activities, uh, that's the prism of, of most of Reb Lezer Silver's activities. It's through Reb Chaim Oizer. It's a very important point. It seems that he uh, even received rabbinical ordination from Reb Chaim Oizer himself, which wasn't all that common. He studied for a time in Brisk under Reb Chaim Brisker. Um, so he got it all from Dvinsk, Vilna, Brisk, I mean, from the greatest... Uh, uh, leaders of his day, while he was in Brisk, he was together. Um, I'm sorry, while he was in 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 uh, either Brisk or or by the kibbutz of Rechaim Meiser or both. I'm not sure. He but definitely at one point he was with together with Reb Shlaima Polyachik, the Meichiter Ilui, um, who became his close friend and whom he'd worked together with later on when the Meichiter became the first great Rosh Hashiva to be in the United States when he became the Rosh Hashiva in Rabbeinu Yitzchakhan in the 1920s. So his training, the Rebbe Silva's training was from the rabbinical elite of Lithuania of his day. He got married and shortly afterwards the young couple decided to emigrate, um, leave Russia following the throngs of Jewish emigrants escaping from the dire poverty and anti-Semitism which characterized Tsarist Russia at the time. Um, as it happens, the great emigration increased in the years following the failed 1905 revolution, uh, which was a reaction to the reactionary measures which Tsar Nikolai the uh, second had put in place to crush the revolutionary activities. So he's riding on a wave um, uh, of, 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 of immigration, uh, which is at its peak. This is literally the peak of the great immigration. But just before we follow him to the United States, there's a fascinating, he wrote a bit of a memoir in the introduction to his uh, Sefer and Anfa Eras um, about his years of study in Lithuania. And he writes there, again, he was very into talking about his, you know, his youth and his accomplishments, an interesting way of, 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 of discussing his own activities. And he writes that in 1898, his father sent him to study in, in Vilna. Not only did he have a close relationship with Rebchaim Eiser, but he also knew um, one of the great forgotten sages of Vilna at the time, one of the Dayanim and the Vilna the rabbinical court, Rameir Michal Shotter. A tremendous, uh, again, it's an opportunity to mention a forgotten name, a tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham and Paisik, uh, one of the well, most well-known Lithuanian rabbis of his day. And also um, he knew, related uh, Silver knew, Reb David Karliner, Reb David Friedman, who was one, also one of the uh, rabbinical leaders of the day. He knew them both and got to know them both uh, during Reb uh, frequent visits to Vilna. And then uh, he mentions that when Reb Chaim Oizer sent him to study by Reb Chaim Brisker, so he wrote him a letter uh, of introduction, and he wrote, and, and Reb Silver writes that the letter contained the, what, what, the praises that Reb Chaim Oizer had written about him to Reb Chaim Brisker, and he writes that Reb Chaim Oizer had never seen a masmid, someone who studied with the amount of diligence that I did, like me. He never saw someone who, who was as big of a masmid as I was. He also wrote there, that Reb Chaim Eiser wrote that, that I was an expert in all of Shas. Um, and this is when I was 20 years old. This is what uh, Reb Silver writes. So when he was 20, he was already an expert in all of Shas, and he was a tremendous masmid. And, uh, and, uh, and, um, and that, was, uh, that was when he went to Brisk. Um, it's interesting, Reb Chaim Eiser's kibbutz, 
his uh, informal yeshiva. It was a very unofficial yeshiva. Rabbi Chaim Weiser handpicked young, aspiring uh, students whom, whom he envisioned in future leadership positions in the rabbinate. Uh, some of the ones who attended Rabbi Chaim Weiser's kibbutz was Rabbi Ruven Katz, who was later on the, Rav in, the rabbi in Petach Tikva, the Mechit Te'ilui, I mentioned Rabbi Shleim Polyachik. There was Rabbi Meisha Avigdor Amil, who was one of the leading rabbis and heads of the Mizrahi, um, of religious Zionism. He eventually was the rabbi of Tel Aviv. I mentioned him in the Tel Aviv election uh, episode, or rabbinate election episode way back. Rabbi Chaim Weiser wrote him a letter congratulating him on the Tel Aviv rabbinate. There were several others. Um, contrary to popular belief, the Chazayin Ish did not study in the kibbutz of Rabbi Chaim Weiser, but there's actually in the recent uh, biography on Rabbi Chaim Weiser Grzynski by Rabbi David Kamenetsky, there's a whole chapter on the kibbutz, so it's very interesting. You can see more about it there. They were spread, the kibbutz was spread among four shuls in Vilna. It was, again, it wasn't, an, it wasn't that formal, like a regular yeshiva didn't have its own building, and Rabbi Chaim Weiser oversaw their schedule and the progress of each and every individual. Um, so, uh, in speaking of Rabbi Lezer Silver's accomplishments in Torah scholarship, before we get to his leadership, so Rabbi Rakefet tells this story very often, that when uh, Rav Salvechik, Rabbi Salvechik, the Rav, uh, gave his first shear in the United States uh, by a gathering at the Agudas Rabbanu in the 1930s. So his father, Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, told him that he doesn't need to be afraid of any of the rabbis there because none of them, again, this is Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, who is known to be, uh, uh, have a, you know, a quite a, a critical view on, on many things, very similar to his father, a bit of a critique uh, uh, you know, the Soloveitchik way. So Ramesha Soloveitchik said, you don't have to be afraid of any of these rabbis because none of them have opened up a safer since they were in Europe. Except for the small rabbi in the corner wearing a cylinder, a top hat. He's the only one who has been studying Torah the entire time. And after the class that Rav Soloveitchik uh, delivered, Rav Lazer Silver uh, went over to Rav Soloveitchik and gave him a, a big thank you with a handshake and a slip of paper with seven or eight strong questions on the shear that he had delivered. Um, at some point, Ramesh Soloveitchik was actually trying to publish some of the uh, writings of his father, Rav Chaim Brisker, and he asked Rav Lazer Silver to look it over. Who, who, who looked it over and said it's not ready for publication. He withheld it. Uh, Ramesh Soloveitchik basically acknowledged that Erblazer Silver knew Reb Chaim better than anyone. So it's amazing that Erblazer Silver is so well known as an organizer, as a leader, as a communal rabbi. And yet he was such a towering figure and he had a stature as a Talmudic scholar as well, which is somewhat is sometimes overlooked. So he immigrated to the United States at the peak of the Great Immigration. Like I said, in 1907, he initially settles in New York City and found employment in the Garment District, like every other immigrant, basically, at the time. Imagine how different history may have been had he stayed in the garment industry. But eventually he entered the rabbinate. He became the rabbi in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Congregation Kesher Israel from 1907 to 1925. Later on, he's the rabbi in Springfield, Massachusetts from 1925 to 1931. And then famously as the rabbi in Cincinnati, Ohio from 1931 until his passing in 1968 for 37 years. So he influenced the American rabbinical scene for 60 years, an enormous amount of time and a tremendous impact. He was a communal rabbi in Cincinnati, first and foremost. In other words, he wore several hats as a national leader and as the liaison to Eastern European Jewry, but also as the local community in Cincinnati. Um, he started what was called the Vad Ha'ir and his own kashras organization um, for rabbinical supervision, which led him into dispute with other local rabbis. 
because of his vada'ir and kashrus endeavors, especially with a fellow by the name of Rabbi Sal Epstein, who viewed it as an encroachment on his kashrus. Um, but he eventually you know, worked things out, and Rabbi Lazar Silver actually um, was able to make a you know a decent uh, living, uh, you know, support himself quite comfortably for a bit of time based on his slaughterhouses and his uh, his, his uh, kosher supervision. He was able to live uh, comfortably. Um, later on, he founded the Chavetz Chaim Day School, which was the first full-time day school in the city, and he had a lot of impact just locally in the city. First and foremost, he's the congregational rabbi in the town, uh, So, and he did not... Uh, did not uh, Keep that as second, secondary just because he was the greatest rabbi in the United States. He also had the look of a rabbi, very regal. He wore a cylinder, a top hat. Now, many rabbis wore those in those days, by the way, in both in, in, everywhere, in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, and in the United States. It was quite common attire. Today it's kind of just attributed to him, but it was actually quite common for rabbis to wear it at the time all over. Uh, but he had national rabbinical leadership from early on. In um, in 1912, uh, which was only five years after he arrived in the United States, he barely knew English at the time, he already was wanted and obtained a meeting with President William Howard Taft on behalf of Russian Jewry uh, to, to, to influence the Tsar's uh, persecution, oppression of Russian Jewry, and, uh, and, uh, and, and right away, he's going to the top. Uh, subsequently, later on, he was very close with his son, Robert Taft, uh, who was a senator from Ohio, and he was later on in Cincinnati, also in Ohio. But even before he was in Cincinnati, he had a very close relationship with, with Robert Taft, um, who was, uh, was the leading Republican in the Senate and the majority leader for a short time. He was also considered one of the five greatest senators in U.S. history. So he was a powerful person to be uh, connected with. And considering that three of the other five are from the greatest statesmen ever, John C. Calhoun, Henry Clay, and Daniel Webster, so that's an impress, impressive accolade uh, for uh, Robert uh, Taft and impressive for Rebleza Silver to have that uh, relationship. So many of his initiatives, like I said, were at the behest of Reb Chaim Weiser, maintained the closest relationship with him, founded these organizations, which I'm going to talk about, which he founded at his request, and so it had his advice on many issues. Uh, Reb Chaim Weiser has a direct role in all this as well. So he joins the, uh, Rebleza Silver joins the Agudas Rabbanim. He becomes the president of the Agudas Rabbanim in 1929, and he's very active on behalf of the American rabbinate in that capacity. During World War I in 1915, he founds Ezra's Torah on Reb Chaim Weiser's behest to assist rabbinical, rabbinic refugees during World War I and their families, yeshivas, etc. So he founded the organization Ezra's Torah. In the late 1930s, he's the founder of the Agudas Yisrael of America. In November 1939, he's the founder of the Vad Hatzalah organization, which unified all Orthodox organizations under one umbrella for rescue of rabbinical leaders and yeshiva students. Uh, and, and much later in the war, in 1943, they expanded their efforts to save other Jews as well. But he founded that organization. He lobbies for it in Washington. He raises millions of dollars, literally, for it. And he was its president throughout. He was able to obtain, through lobbying efforts, emergency above quota visas for rabbis and their families. And his activities in the American rabbinate with Agudas Rabbanim, in uh, Ezra's Torah, in Agudas Yisrael, in the Barat Salah. Each one is so vast that I'm not going to spend any time on it now, but I'm going to save it for future episodes on him. I want to ask a different question. Were all these organizations connected? I mean, Agudas Yisrael is a, you know, ostensibly a political organization with this very specific worldview, Ezra's Torah is for rabbis and 
and yeshivas, Agudas Rabbanim is a rabbinical organization, Varatzal is a rescue organization, more broad in its scope, and, and he's at the top of all of it. So are they all just one organization and it's just different names uh, for tax reasons or something? And the answer is, these are all very different organizations, very different uh, politically, religiously, very different. But he was the universal leader. He was the one who connected it. He crossed all party lines and also he exuded such love for every Jew and for all different types. And he was someone who took such full responsibility for everything. So he was able to accomplish what he did. One of his greatest accomplishments was in, in uh, uh, together with Peter Bergson. Uh, in October 1943, the organization of the famous Rabbi's March, which I had on an episode uh, way back of Jewish History Soundbites. You can check that out, but Reblazer Silver was the one who, who uh, was behind that on the rabbinical end, but Peter Bergson was on the organizational and logistics end, and uh, he led the over 400 Orthodox rabbis on the uh, in a march on Washington uh, in 1943 uh, to protest the inaction of, of uh, the State Department and the president and the executive branch on behalf of European Jewry. Um, so also an amazing story. And at the end of the war, he visits the DP camps. He goes to the displaced persons camps. He carried $100,000 in cash in his pocket from Varhatsala funds to distribute to help survivors. He distributed it all. And when he ran out of money, he borrowed money uh, and lived for the rest of his life because of that in debt, because he, the plight of the survivors really touched his heart, and he, he needed to continue assisting them. And the fact that he had run out of Arhatzala money didn't stop him, and he took personal IOUs, which he, he had to you know, try to repay for the rest of his life. He received permission to wear a U.S. Army officer's uniform without official insignia or rank, obviously, because he was not officially in the Army, but it allowed him to move more freely, and this raised many eyebrows. This fellow with a long beard, an elderly individual, and he's prancing around with an Army officer uniform. Um, he tried to assist and inspire and breathe a new life into the broken survivors. There's all kinds of stories with him in the DP camps of rescuing Jewish children from monasteries, there's a, a story that they say about about a hundred different rabbis, about Herzog, about Spilazer Silver. I'm sure it's true about one of them. I'm not sure which one about him going into a monastery and reciting the Shema Yisrael and, and the Jewish children who, re, who recognized that they recited it together with him. And that was the way he was able to identify with th those children, especially when church officials were being uncooperative about uh, allowing these baptized children to rejoin their Jewish faith after their entire families had been murdered. So he was able to rescue these children, whether the story was with him or with a different rabbi. And there's another apocryphal story, which I doubt ever happened, but they say it about him, so why not? Um, at, uh, that he passed a checkpoint and didn't give a salute. He didn't know military discipline. And he was stopped and asked for his identity, and they saw that he wasn't really an officer, so he said, what do you mean I'm the chief rabbi of the United States and you can verify my credentials with Senator Robert Taft of Ohio? Uh, so supposedly they even called Senator Taft and Senator Taft said, you better let him go. If he stays any longer, he'll start giving you orders. Uh, so <laughs> that says a lot about his personality, even if the story never happened. Uh, we come to the post-war and, um, and here with the rise of the Russia yeshiva in the post-war and the decline of the rabbinate, the American rabbinate, so... The question is, what is Reblazer Silver's role? It, does he have a declining influence on the American Jew Orthodox scene in the 1950s and 60s? There's the rabbinate versus the Russia Yeshiva, who's the more influential. That's definitely a topic for another time that we can explore in a, in a future episode. 
just a couple of stories and anecdotes about him of hopefully uh, um, um, not take not too much time. Um, he would not rely on the kashrus outside of his own city, and he would bring his own food with him. So, but to make it more amusing, and because of his personality, he would sometimes keep a small package of chicken in his hat, cooked chicken that he would eat when he was at official functions in his top hat, and he would take it out from his top hat, uh, which would kind of surprise the hosts, and there's uh, stories of him, you know, hostesses uh, protesting that and, and saying, okay, so don't put it on my dishes, you know, who says your chicken is kosher for my dish, and, and so on and so forth. There's actually a very humorous story, which is related to this week's Parsha of, uh, of, uh, of Balak, um, that uh, he, uh, he was trying to build a mikveh in Cincinnati, and the local reform rabbi was anti these archaic practices of having to use a mikveh, so he, uh, he tried to t- block him from doing it, and the way he was able to do it was through zoning, and it got to court. To, to rezone it, the zoning laws, they're violating the zoning uh, uh, um, uh, ordinances or, or, or whatever it is. And it goes to, the, goes to court. And, and in, when they're facing each other in court, so the reform rabbi is trying to mock the religiosity and the orthodoxy of this old-fashioned European rabbi there. So he says to him, do you really believe what the Bible says about Bilaam's donkey really speaking, really talking? Do you really believe that it spoke? So Rebelezer Silver responded, If I wasn't sure until now, I just had one speak to me right now in court, so now I'm pretty sure about it. And what makes this story even funnier is that the reform fellow did not use the word donkey. He used another word, which I prefer not to use, but that would make his wit even sharper. There's another story that I related at another time about the Musser movement, about how Rev Dessler, Rebelezer Dessler, when he was visiting his son, Reb Nachum Velvel Dessler, Reb Nachum Velvel Dessler had told him that in the post-war, when he had established his day school in Cleveland, so he had received a lot of assistance from Reblazer Silver out in Cincinnati, who had helped him establish the school, the Hebrew Academy in Cleveland. And Reb Dessler said, did you thank him properly? And he said, no. So he said, we have to go to Cincinnati and thank Reblazer Silver. So they got on a plane, uh, sorry, a train, which was a you know God knows how many hour ride, and they went to Reblazer Silver, and Reblazer said, well, can, what, what did you come here for? Such a long train ride. And he said, we we came to thank you for assisting in the establishment of the day school of my son. And, and Rebelezer Silva says, thank you very much, but why did you come here? And he said, uh, this is why. He said, okay, strange. The next morning, Rebelezer and his son decide to take leave of Rebelezer Silver to go back to Cleveland, the long train ride, and Rebelezer Silver asks them again, well, why did you come here? And he says, that's all we did. We came here for this. So he says, uh, he mutters under his breath, that must be some sort of musser thing. Uh, Blazer Silver was very old school in the Kelm style Musser that Irv Dessler represented and expressed was very foreign to him and uh, um, he uh he, uh, so the, that was, uh, you know, a little bit about him. He was very well respected, you know, when he was sick at the end of his life, last several years of his life, he was not so with it, um, but he uh, but he was so well respected and universal. When, when he passed away, his funeral and burial in Cincinnati, Moshe Feinstein took the train to Cincinnati for his funeral. Um, we, we, will, we will speak about him more. There's plenty more to say on future episodes about Rebelez Silver. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, uh, sponsorships, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast pad- platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.